0: Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Recording by Marty on the central coast of California. Astounding Stories Number 6, June 1930, The Moon Master by Charles W. Diffin. Now that's a mighty queer noise, Jerry Foster told himself. He dropped the pack from his shoulders and leaned closer to the canyon rim miles behind him was the last beaten trail jerry wanted peace and solitude and quiet and now the quiet of the silent mountains was disturbed from far below came a steady muffled roar faint it was and distant but peculiar in its unvarying unceasing rush not water jerry concluded not enough down there Sounds like, like a wind, like a wind that can't quit. Oh, well, he shrugged his shoulders and slipped into the straps of his pack. Then he went back again to the granite ledge. I wonder if there's a way down, he said. There was, but it took all of Jerry's strength to see him safely through. On a fan-shaped talus of spreading boulders, he stopped. There was a limestone wall beyond and at its base, from a crevice that was almost the cave, came a furious rush of air and steam. It touched him lightly, a hundred feet away, and then he threw himself flat to escape the hot blast. Endlessly it came, with its soft, rushing roar, a ceaseless, scorching blast from the cold rocks. That's almighty funny, mused Foster, and sniffed the air. There was no odour. And is it hot, he said. Nothing like that in my geology book. And what is beyond? Looks like concrete work, as if someone had plastered up the cave. He picked his way quickly across the rock slope. It was hard going. Below him, the rocks and dirt went steep into the canyon floor. At its foot, the blast swept diagonally over the slope. He must see what lay beyond. Curious, he thought curious if that is nature's work and a lot more so if it isn't a rock rolled beneath his feet another he scrambled and fought desperately for foothold in the slipping earth then rolling and clawing he rode helpless on the slide straight toward the mysterious blast he felt it envelop him hot and strangling his lungs were dry and burning the blazing sun faded from the rocks the world was dark darkness was still about him when he awoke but it was cool the air was sweet on his lips and it was not entirely dark. He turned his head. He was in a room on a rough-hewn table a candle was burning its light cast flickering shadows on walls of stone rumbling in his ears was the sound of the blast that had overwhelmed him. It echoed seemingly from far back in the stone cliff Jerry made a move to sit up. He found that his hands and feet were tied, his body bound to the rough board bed. At the sound of his stirring, a figure came out from the farther shadow. It was that of a man. Jerry looked at him in silence. He was tall, his thin erectness making him seem abnormal in the low room. The lean face was unshaven, and from under a thatch of black hair. A pair of deep-set eyes stared penetratingly at the figure on the rude bed. "'Well?' asked Jerry at length. "'What's the big idea?' There was no reply, only the intent, staring eyes. "'You got me out of that man-trap of yours,' Jerry continued. "'You saved my life.' The tall man finally spoke. "'Yes, I saved your life. You missed the hottest part of the exhaust. I pumped you full of oxygen.' Then why tie me up like this? Jerry Foster was frankly puzzled. You are lucky to be alive. Spies are not always allowed. He interrupted himself abruptly. You are a reporter, he stated. Wrong, said Jerry Foster. Who sent you? Nobody sent me. I heard the noise of your infernal blast furnace and came down to have a look. Who sent you? repeated the man. Goodwin? The Stillwater crowd. Who was it? I don't know what you're talking about, protested Jerry. I don't know who your Goodwin or Stillwater people are. I don't know who you are. I don't give a damn. Take these ropes off and cut out the melodrama. I'll go on my way and I don't care if I never see you again. That's a lie. The tall figure leaned over to shake a bony fist. You'd report to Goodwin. He stole my last invention. He'll not get this. Jerry considered the wild figure carefully. He's a nut he thought. When he spoke, his voice was controlled. Now see here, he said. I don't know anything about this. I'm Jerry Foster. Live in San Francisco. So does Goodwin. Confound you and your Goodwin. So do a million other people live there. I'm getting away from there. I'm heading into the hills for a short vacation. All I want is to get away from the world. I'm looking for a little peace and quiet. The thin man interrupted with a harsh laugh. "'Come here, spying,' he said, "'and tell me you want to get away from the world.' Again he laughed shrilly. (laughs) "'And am I going to be your little fairy godmother? "'I wish you were Goodwin himself. "'I wish I had him here. "'But you'll get your wish. "'You'll get your wish. "'You'll leave the world. "'You shall indeed.' He rocked back and forth with appreciation of his humor. Didn't know I was all ready to leave, did you? All packed and ready to go. Supplies all stowed away. Enough energy stored to carry me millions of miles. Or maybe you did know. Maybe there are others coming. He hurried across the room to open a heavy door of split logs in the rock wall. I'll fool them all this time, he said. And you'll never go back to tell them. The door closed behind him crazy as a bed bug, Jerry told himself. He strained frantically at the ropes that bound him. Looks bad for me. The old bird said I'll never go back. Well, what if I die now? Or six months from now? Though I know that doctor was wrong. He tried to accept his fate philosophically, but the will to live was strong, and one of his wrists felt looser in its bonds. Across the room, his pack lay on the floor, and in it was a heavy forty-five. If he could get the pistol. A knot pulled loose under his twisting fingers. One hand was free. He worked feverishly at the other wrist. The ropes were suddenly loose. He pulled himself to his feet, took a moment to regain control of cramped muscles, then flung himself at the pack. When the heavy door was opened, he was behind it, his pistol in his hand. There was no struggle. The lanky figure showed no maniacal fury. Instead, the man did a surprising thing. He sank weakly upon the rough bunk where Jerry had lain, his face buried in his thin hands. I should have let you die, he said slowly, hopelessly. I should have let you die, but I couldn't do that. And now you'll steal my invention for Goodwin!" Jerry was as exasperated as he was amazed. "'I told you!' he almost shouted. "'I never knew anyone named Goodwin. I don't care a hoot about your invention. And as for letting me die, why didn't you?' "'That's a puzzle. You were about to kill me anyway.' "'No,' said the other patiently. I wasn't going to kill you. You said I'd never go back. I was going to take you with me. Take me where? To the moon," said the drooping figure. Jerry Foster stared open-mouthed. The pistol lagged in his limp hand. To the moon, he gasped. Then— See here, he said firmly, I've got you where I want you. He held the pistol steady, and now I'm going to learn what's back of this. I think you are crazy, absolutely crazy. But tell me, who are you? What do you think you're doing? What was the meaning of that roaring blast? The man looked up. You don't know? He asked eagerly. You really don't? No, said Jerry, but I'm going to find out. Yes, the other agreed. Yes, you can, now that you've got the upper hand. I guess I was half crazy when I thought I had been spied out. But I'll tell you," he sat erect. "'I am Thomas J. Winslow,' he said, and made the statement as if it were an explanation in itself." "'Well,' said Jerry, that's no burst of illumination to my ignorance. Come again?" The man called Winslow was ready, anxious to talk. "'I am an inventor. I have made millions of dollars.' Jerry looked at the disheveled apparel of the speaker and smiled. For other people, the Stillwater Syndicate stole my valveless motor. Then I developed my television set. Goodwin beat me out of that. He will have it on the market inside of a year. I swore they would never profit by this, my greatest invention." Jerry was impressed in spite of himself by the man's earnest simplicity. "'What is it?' he asked. "'I've broken the atom,' said Winslow. First tore the atoms of hydrogen and oxygen apart, disassociated them in the molecule of water, and have resolved them into their energy components. That's what you heard, the reaction. It is self-sustaining, exothermic. That hot blast carried off the heat of my retort. Winslow rose from the bunk. Gone was his listless despondency. Put up that gun, he said. You don't need it now. I think we understand each other better than we did. He crossed with quick strides to the door leading into the cliff. Come with me, he told Foster. I am leaving today. You will not stop me. But before I go, I will show you something no other man than myself has ever seen. He led the way through the doorway. There was another room beyond, Jerry saw. It was a cave, plainly. Winslow had taken these caves in the rocks and had made them a laboratory. A lantern gave scant illumination. Jerry made out a small electric generator, and that was all. He felt a keen disappointment. Somehow this thin-faced man had communicated to him something of his own belief, his own earnestness. "'What kind of a laboratory do you call this?' he demanded, but the other was busy. In the wall, an opening had been closed with a small iron door, with cement around it. Winslow opened it and reached through. He was evidently adjusting something. The little dynamo began to hum. There was a crackling hiss from beyond the iron doorway. The opening was flooded with a clear blue light. Then the roar began. It was tremendous, deafening in the echoing cave. "'You may look now,' said Winslow and stood aside. Jerry peered through. There was another cave beyond. In it was a small metal cylinder, a retort of some kind. The blue light came from a crooked bulb beyond. The retort itself was white-hot, despite a steam of water flowing upon it. A cloud of steam drove continuously out and up through a crevice in the rocks. The water flowed steadily from some subterranean stream in the limestone formation. It was diverted for its cooling purposes, but a portion also flowed continuously into the retort. Jerry's eyes found this and he could see nothing else, for before his eyes the impossible was occurring. The retort was small, a couple of feet in diameter. It had no discharge pipes, could hold but a few gallons, yet into it, in a steady stream flowed the icy water. Gallons, hundreds of gallons, flowing and flowing, endlessly, into a reservoir which could never hold it. The inventor watched Foster with complacent satisfaction. Where does it go? Jerry asked incredulously. Into nothingness, was the reply, or nearly that. See? He held up a flask of pale green liquid. And this, he added, exhibiting another that was colorless i have worked here for many months i have converted thousands of thousands of gallons of water it has flowed into that retort never to return i have gathered this the product a few drops at a time the protons and the electrons he explained are reformed they are static now unmoving call this what you will energy or matter they are one and the same Still, said Jerry gropingly, what has all this to do with the moon? You said we were going there. Yes, agreed the inventor. I am going, and this is the driving force to carry me there. I pass a certain electric current through these two liquids. I carry the wires to two heavy electrodes. Between them, resolution of matter occurs. The current carries these two components to again combine them, and form what we call matter, the gases, hydrogen, and oxygen. Do I need to tell you of the constant, ceaseless, and tremendous explosion that follows? But enough of this. You said I was crazy. I gave you a few bad hours. I have shown you this much as a measure of recompense. You have seen what no other man has ever seen. It is enough. He motioned Foster through the door. The roaring ceased. The inventor returned shortly, the two flasks of liquid in his hands. He transferred both to two metal containers that were ready for the precious load. He carried them with the utmost care as he went out of doors. Once he returned, and Jerry knew by the crashes from the inner room that the laboratory work was indeed done. There would be nothing left to tell the secret to whomever might come. He followed Winslow outside trailing him toward a wooded knoll. There was a clearing among the trees, and in it, hidden from all sides, his eyes found another curious sight. On the ground rested a dirigible in miniature. Still, it was small, he reasoned, only by comparison with its monster prototype. Actually, it was a sizable cylinder of aluminum that shone brightly in the sun. It was bluntly rounded at the ends. There were heavy windows, open exhaust ports, a door in the side pierced through thick walls. Winslow vanished within while Jerry watched in pitying wonder. Despite its size, it was a toy, an absurd and pitiful toy. Real genius and lunacy had many an overlapping line, Jerry reflected as he approached to look inside but he found Winslow in a room surrounded by a network of curving, lattice struts. The machine was no makeshift of a demented builder. It was a beautiful bit of construction that Jerry Foster examined. "'How did you ever get it here?' he marveled. "'What you had in the cave you could pack in. But this? All these parts? Castings? Cases of supplies?' The inventor did not even turn. He was busy, with some final adjustments. "'Flew it in,' he said shortly. "'Built it in an old shop I owned out near Oakland.' "'And it flew?' Jerry was still incredulous. "'Certainly it flew. On a drop or less of the liquids you saw.' He pointed to a heavy casting at the center of the machine. There were braces tying it strongly to the entire structure—braces designed to receive and transmit a tremendous thrust. This is a generator, blasts expelled through the big exhaust at the stern. These smaller exhausts go above and below, right and left at the bow. Perfect control. And you flew it here. Jerry was still trying to grasp that incontrovertible fact. And you were going to take me to the moon, you said. He looked above him where a pale, silvery segment showed dimly in the sky. But why the moon? He questioned even granting that this will fly through space. It will, the other interrupted. I tried it. went up to better than fifty miles. Jerry Foster took a minute to grasp that statement, then continued, granting that. Why go to the moon? There's nothing there. No air to speak of. No water. It's all known. The inventor turned to face the younger man in the doorway. There is nothing known, he stated. The modern telescopes reach out a million light years into space, but the only place they have ever seen, can ever see, is less than two hundred and fifty thousand miles away. The moon, as of course you know, always keeps the same side towards us. The other side of the moon has never been seen. Listen, he said, and his deep-set eyes were afire with an intense emotion. The moon is no tiny satellite, it is a sister planet. It is whirled on the end of a rope we call gravitation, swung around and around the earth. How could there be water or anything fluid on this side? It is all thrown to the other side by the centrifugal force. Who knows what life is there? No one. No one. I am going to find out. Jerry Foster was silent. He was thinking hard. He looked about him at the clean hills, the trees, the world he knew and he was weighing the secure life he knew against a great adventure. He took one long breath of the clear air as one who looks at his last at a familiar scene. He exhaled slowly, but he stepped firmly into the machine. "'Winslow,' he said, "'have you any rope handy?' The inventor was annoyed. "'Why, yes, I guess so. Why? What do you want of it?' "'I want you to tie me up again.' said Jerry Foster. I want you to carry me off as you planned. I want to go with you. The tall man stared at a quiet, determined face before him. Slowly, his own strained features smoothed into kindly lines. He grasped tight at Jerry's hand. I was dreading that part of it, he confessed slowly. Going alone, I would have been lonely. Out there. The shining cylinder of aluminum alloy was hurtling through space. No longer was it a ship of the air. It had thrown itself far beyond that thin, gaseous envelope surrounding the earth, out into the black and empty depths that lay beyond. And in it were two men, each reacting in his own way to an adventure incredible. One was deep in the computation of astronomical data. The other, a thrill with a quivering, nerve-shaking joy that was almost breathtaking. A metal grating that had formed the rear wall of their cabin was now the floor. Winslow had thrown the ship into a vertical climb that made their machine a projectile shooting straight out from the earth. Gravitation held them now to the grating floor, and, stronger even than the earth pull was the constant acceleration of motion that made their weight doubled again and again. The inventor moved ponderously with leaden limbs to take sights from the windows above to consult his maps of the sky check and recheck his figures but jerry had eyes only for the earth they had left flat on the grating he lay his eyes over a thick glass in a protuberance of the shell that allowed him to stare and to stare at what lay directly below he watched the familiar things of earth vanish in fleecy clouds Through them there formed the great ball where oceans and continents drew slowly into focus, and now he was filled with a sense of great solitude. The world, in its old familiar companionship, was gone, probably forever. The earth, his earth, his world, that place of vast distances on land and on sea, of lofty mountain ranges and heaving oceans, of cities, countries, continents was become but a toy, a plaything from the nursery of some baby god, hanging so quiet in space he could almost reach and take it in his hands. Beyond it the sun was blaring, a hard-outlined disk in the black sky, its rays made shining brilliance of a polar ice cap. Jerry Foster closed his eyes and drew back from the glass. Again he was aware of the generator, whose endless roar reverberated in their compartment A smaller but similar apparatus was operating on one of the liquids from the inventor's laboratory to generate oxygen and release it inside the room. An escape valve had been set to maintain one atmosphere pressure about them. Water dripped from a condenser where both gases were formed to burn into water vapor and cool to liquid form. One of the windows below admitted a shaft of direct sunlight. It illuminated their room with a faint glow. It would never cease jerry knew they were in a place of eternal sunshine yet a realm of an endless night above him jerry raised his head the windows framed nothing but utter blackness save where some brilliant point marked the presence of a star he missed the soft diffusion of light that makes daylight on earth here was only the one straight beam that entered one window to make a circle of light on the opposite wall. Jerry looked from a window of heavy glass at the side. This had been the bottom of their ship when they left, and he found in the heavens the object of their quest. Clear cut and golden was half the circle. The rest glowed faintly in the airless void. He tried to realize the bewildering fact. The moon, this great globe that he saw, was rushing, as were they. To their trysting place in space. Jerry stared until his eyes were aching. His mind refused to take hold upon the truth he knew was true. He was suddenly tired, heavy with weariness that was an aftermath of his emotional turmoil. He let his heavy body relax where some blankets had piled themselves upon the grated floor. The roar of the generator faded into far silence as he slipped into that strange, spaceless realm that men call sleep. The human mind is marvelous in its power of adjustment, its adaptability to the new and the strange. The unbelievable is so soon the commonplace. Jerry Foster was to sleep more than once in this tiny new world of Winslow's creating, this diminutive meteor, inside which they lived and moved and thought and talked. The fact of their new existence soon ceased as a topic of wonder. They alternated in their rest, and they counted the passage of time by the hours their watches marked, then divided these hours into days, out there where there were no days. Seven of them had passed when the hour came that Winslow chose for checking their speed. They were driving directly toward the moon, which was assuming proportions like those of Earth. The pilot admitted a portion of the blast to a bow port and the globe ahead of them gradually swung off. Now their stern windows showed the approaching globe. It was slowly expanding. They were falling toward it. The inventor moved a rheostat, and from behind them the stern blast rose to a tremendous roar. The deceleration held them with unbearable weight to the rear of the cabin. No thought now for the shining earth, yellow and brilliant in the velvet sky above. Jerry Foster watched through the slow hours as the globe beneath them enlarged and expanded in ever increasing slowness. Slowly their falling motion slackened as they cushioned against the terrific thrust of the exhaust below. End of section 15. Recorded by Marty on the Central Coast of California the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, You don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show.